You may be seated. He is the same God yesterday, today, and forever, right? And we praise him. Thank you so much for our worship team, you congregation joining worship. Thank you, Chuck, for leading us out. Beautiful testimony of grace and song. It's about the glorious God that we have, and our God is glorious, right? And his glory is on display in a way that our finite minds cannot comprehend as we read about him in Romans chapter 9. So I'm going to ask you, if you would, to turn to the passage. Tony, our dear elder, read to us the first five verses this morning. We're going to look at the rest of this this morning. And if you're our guest, whether here or online, we're making a journey through this wonderful, wonderful letter. Paul's epistle to the believers in Rome. Now, if you do even just a, a cursory reading through the, uh, the letter to the Romans, through this book of Romans, you know that there is a change of focus when you come to this portion of the epistle. In chapter 8... Uh, you have what I have called, many have called, like the Mount Everest. The Mount Everest of God's loving grace. Mount Everest, the highest point on the globe, 29,002 feet. Mount Everest. And chapter 8 is like the heights of God's love. And then Paul begins in our Bibles with a brand new thought. Chapter 9, it's like not a mountain, but like the depths of an ocean. You know, I'm amazed to know something. Mount Everest is the highest place on the planet, 29,002 feet. But you know, you could take Mount Everest and put on top of Mount Everest, Mount Lacan. And there are places so deep in the Pacific Ocean, you would not even break the surface. Think of that. There are depths in the ocean of over 35,000 feet. Well, to me... Romans chapter 9 is like the depths of that ocean of God's truth. And as we enter into this chapter, we're in some deep water here. And I will gladly tell you, I'm way over my head. And I will be preaching to you this morning things I don't understand. And you may be saying, well, Sam, what's new about that? You've been doing that for years. This is deep water because it is all about our sovereign God. Our sovereign God. Now chapter 8, you'll notice, ends with an exclamation of joyous praise. That there is nothing, nothing in all creation that can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
But then chapter 9, the very next sentence, the Apostle Paul begins with a sigh of a burdened heart. A burdened heart for his people that he loves. He is so overwhelmed and amazed at God's love for him, such a sinner. But he is still brokenhearted for his people to know this love that he knows in Messiah Jesus Christ. So what you have here in Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11 are really one unit of thought. And we'll walk through it these next several weeks. And in these three chapters, Paul is dealing with something. He's dealing with Israel's relationship to God and what we learn from it concerning God's sovereign purpose in his saving grace. Paul is going to talk about Israel, God's relationship to those descendants of Abraham. But as he talks about this burden he has for his fellow brothers and sisters of Israel, he's going to open up and take us to the depths of God's grace for sinners who are Jew and Gentile. Now, at first glance, this section seems out of order. You'd expect chapter 8, where we've been to the mountaintops of God's love, you'd expect what comes next to be chapter 12. Now, how do you come down from the mountaintops and deal with this in your daily life and walk it out? And that's where we're going to get. We're going to get there. But Paul first takes us from that place of the mountaintop of God's love and he finds that it's a perfect place to discuss Israel and God's grace. Because you remember, what has his message been to the believers at Rome? From chapter 1, verse 16, he said, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For it is the power of God to salvation to the Jews first. And also to the Gentiles. And now he's going to take three chapters to explain how that good news, yes, has come to the Jews first. But also in coming to the Jewish people, it has wrapped its arms around the nations of the world. Now, there are two questions that Paul anticipates. And he's going to answer these questions in chapter 9 to 11. The first question is this, if salvation is first to the Jews, to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles, if salvation is first to the Jews and God made such promises about that, has God's sovereign purpose toward the Jewish people failed because so few of them have received Messiah? That's the first question. But there's a second question he's going to answer. 
since so few of the Jewish people have believed in Messiah and God made these promises to them as a people, here's the deeper question. Can God be trusted? Can you trust his promises? So what Paul does in chapters 9 to 11 is he gives an explanation and a vindication. An explanation and a vindication of God's sovereign, gracious salvation. He explains it as much as any person can. And then he vindicates this sovereign, gracious Love of the Lord for sinners. And so this morning, we're going to talk about our sovereign God. Our sovereign God. And he begins by sharing his own broken heart. Listen to it again, verse 1 through 3. A broken-hearted preacher. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. That I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. You see, Paul, for years, has been considered a traitor to his people, a traitor to the Jewish people. But here he shares his heart. He's not a traitor. He is brokenhearted for them. And he uses uh, exaggeration, or you could call it hyperbole. He says, I am so anguished over them, I could wish myself accursed from Christ if they might be saved. What's so sad, his broken heart is over a people who've been so heavenly blessed. They have been so heavenly blessed, but they are blind to Jesus the Messiah. Look how blessed they've been. How blessed his people, the Jewish people have been. Verse 4, they are Israelites. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. He makes his point about how blessed Israel has been. He, he mentions nine specific national blessings that have been given to the Jewish people. Nine specific blessings. They are Israelites. That is, they are descendants from Jacob, the patriarch. To them is the adoption. They have been adopted as God's people. National Israel, adopted as from among the nations. He says, God chose them. They experience the glory What's that referred to? It refers to the Shekinah, the glory presence of the Lord, the cloud of glory. God dwelt in a visible presence with them. They experienced the covenants. God had entered into covenant 
with these people. He had entered into a covenant with Abraham that through his seed all the nations would be blessed. He entered into a covenant with them as a nation at Mount Sinai as he gave them his commandments. And then through King David he entered into a promise, a unilateral promise that he will keep that there will be a king to sit on the throne of David forever and ever. And yet they don't believe. There's the giving of the law. They are the custodians of the word of God. They have the temple service. All of the ceremony that pictures God's holiness and his gracious salvation. They've received all the promises. Hundreds and hundreds of promises in the Old Testament. That have promised them especially of a coming Messiah and his eternal kingdom. They have been given the fathers. They have been the recipients of the blessings of the patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And finally, they have received the most infinite of all blessings. Christ, the Messiah, according to the flesh, who is in his nature God blessed forever, has come to the Jewish people. And yet, The vast, 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 vast majority of them, Paul says, do not believe. What privileges Israel has enjoyed, how blessed, but how blind. My dear friend, let me pause here for a moment to challenge you that it is possibly, it is possible to be spiritually blessed, but still spiritually blind. How many people blessed with a church, blessed with teachers, blessed with a copy of the Word of God, blessed with friends who pray for you, sustain you, blessed with fellowship, and yet personally do not know God in Christ. You can be spiritually blessed and yet spiritually blind to the knowledge of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. My friend, I beg you, don't be numbered in that. Many will stand before Jesus one day who have been spiritually blessed and he will say, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. Many. God forbid that any here, any watching, should be in that number. Make sure you're not just spiritually blessed with the things around the kingdom, but you know the king. Now, the people of Israel are the objects of God's sovereignty. So that begs a question, and this is the question. If the Jewish people are the objects of God's sovereign love, why are they not believing the gospel? That's the question. Paul anticipates the question. Here's his answer. Verse 6. Look at verse 6. It is not as though the word of God has failed... For not all who are descended from Israel, that is, descended from Jacob, belong to Israel. What's Paul saying? 
all who are descended from Jacob physically are not descended from Jacob and the patriarchs spiritually. They don't have the same faith. And now he gives an explanation and illustrations to prove this point. The promises of God, he says, these promises were not made to all Israel. But they are made to the spiritual descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who share their faith. You see, all the promises of God are fulfilled in Christ. And if you don't have Christ... You don't experience the fulfillment of the promises of God. And so there are people, Paul says, he's answering the question. Yes, they are physically descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But they have not believed in the Lord. And they are not children of the promise. He says, not all are true spiritual Israel. There is a spiritual remnant within the nation of Israel. This is what Paul is saying. There is a remnant of people who are believers in the promised Messiah. To whom Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and David, and all the prophets looked with hope. Well, that leads to a deeper question. Why? Why are some Jewish people believers and some not? And Paul answers, not because some of them are morally better than others. The reason that some, ultimate reason that some are believers and others are not is because they have not trusted In God's Messiah, they've not been included in the number of the ones with faith in Messiah. They have to come to faith in Jesus as Messiah. And that happens by the sovereign grace of God. How are all people saved? By grace. Unmerited undeserved favor this is what Paul is saying now to prove this that there is a spiritual Israel who are loved by God and have come to God through Christ he gives some object lessons and I want you to see these object lessons he mentions some object lessons he's going back and proving his point by Examples in the Old Testament. First object lesson is Isaac. Look at verses 7 and 9. He says, Not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac, your offspring will be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God. But the children of the promise." Who are counted as offspring. What's he saying here? There Abraham had 
a son, Ishmael. But it was not, the promise was not through Ishmael. The promised one was Isaac. Isaac was the promised one because this is the one that God had promised to Abraham and Sarah in their old age. Not Ishmael, but Isaac. God made the choice. <laughs> Look at Jacob. Here's another example Paul uses here, Jacob. Jacob's brother was whom? Esau. They were twins. They were the sons of Isaac and Rebekah. And before they were born, God said, the younger will serve the elder. God's choice was Jacob to receive the blessing and he would become the father of the 12 tribes. The choice was completely from the Lord before even the children were born. Look at verses 10 and following. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, he says, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue not because of him, uh, of work, not of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. Verse 13, as it is written, and here he's quoting Obadiah, prophet, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now, how many of you have a hard time with that statement? <laughs> Come on, you're in church, all right? God said, Jacob I've loved, but Esau I've hated. And that's caused so many believers to struggle through the years. But now listen, a couple of things that's important to remember here. The context, remember the context. It, this is not dealing with emotion. This is dealing with choice. The message is not that God emotionally hated Esau, but that God sovereignly chose Jacob. In Hebrew, to not choose is the same as to hate. <laughs> you didn't choose, but there's no other word. Kind of, it's just, I loved one and I hated the other. But now listen, Jesus used the same kind of expression. What did Jesus say in Luke chapter 14, verses 25 to 26? Jesus said this, Unless a man, what? Hates his father and mother. He goes on, He cannot be my disciple. What in the world? Jesus is saying you have to hate your mother, your father, your family, in order to be his disciple? What's the Lord saying? He's not saying 
that to be his disciple, you have to emotionally hate your mother and your father. What he is saying is, you must choose Christ above all. You must honor Christ above all. That is what the Lord is talking about. And so this is the meaning here. It's not that God hated Esau. Why? We know God blessed Esau and made of him a great nation. It wasn't that he hated Esau. He blessed him. But he did not choose him. He chose Jacob. And my friend, listen, let me tell you this. It's a true marvel that God chose Jacob over Esau. Because Esau was a rough character. Jacob's a scoundrel. He's awful. You can't trust him with a hot stove. And, but God chose him for the promise to come through him. You see, God's choice was sovereignly his, not based on works, but based on his will and purpose. It was his will and purpose to choose Jacob and not choose Esau. My friend, I know we struggle here a little bit, but we need to stop and think about it. It shouldn't bother us that God didn't choose Esau and he chose Jacob. What should really amaze us, any of us that are Christians, that he chose us. That should really astound you. It astounds me. Not that God would choose others, but he chose me. My friend, listen. What do we sing? It's amazing grace. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene. And I wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. What was it Paul said? This is a faithful saying. It's worthy of total acceptance. Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners of whom I am what? The chief of sinners. I want to tell you something. If you are not amazed that God saved you, you're probably not saved at all. And I mean that with every ounce of my being. If you haven't been stupefied by grace, jaw-dropping, amazed that God would save you knowing what you know about yourself, let alone what God knows about you. If you don't feel that way, I don't know if you've ever really been saved. Jesus came to save sinners. And I want you to hear a word of hope this morning, my friend. If you feel yourself to be a sinner, you know you're a sinner, friend. You're not far from the kingdom of God. Jesus came for you. But those who stand and feel like they merit God's grace, they are further from the kingdom than anyone else. 
Spurgeon said this, a great preacher. He said, the Lord had to choose me before I was born. He would have never chosen me afterward. <laughs> That's right. Now, Paul anticipated the reaction. He anticipated what some people were going to say about God's sovereign choice. Here's what they were going to say. Verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Is there injustice on God's part by doing this? You know what people very frequently will say today about God's sovereign grace? Saving the sinners that he has set his love upon them, not based on their works, but as a total free gift. There are people who will say, that's not fair. And that's what Paul's anticipating here. God's not just. That's not fair. My friend, listen, God is fair. God is righteous in all of his ways. God is good and he does good. In him is no darkness at all. God is righteous. Therefore, his choices must be righteous, whether we understand them or not. But something we must understand is we, when we deal with God and his sovereign salvation, now lock in about what I'm about to say, and it'll help you. The opposite when you're dealing with God and his gracious salvation, the opposite of fair is not unfairness. When you're dealing with God's salvation, the opposite of fair is not unfairness, it's grace. <laughs> it's grace. What is fairness with God? Justice. If God is fair with you, you get exactly what you deserve. That's fairness. That's justice. But by grace, it is God not only withholding what we do deserve, His justice... He gives us what we don't deserve, his unmerited kindness and love. Amen. It's not fair and unfair. The choice is justice or grace. You don't want God to be fair with you. You don't. Hear me, church. Holy God could send every sinner to hell. And still be perfectly holy. Amen. But he is a God of grace and mercy as well. And untold billions of people. He has determined through Christ. Not to give them what they deserve. But to give them what they don't deserve. His son. Nailed to a cross. Beaten and broken. Bearing their sin. Enduring their torment. Taking their place. 
What a God. And he has chosen to give grace to people who deserve his justice. I say it again, my friend. Put away from your mind ever. God, I want you to be fair with me. You really don't. It's God, be merciful to me, a sinner, for Jesus' sake. God in his sovereign, perfect will gives some sinners justice. And in his sovereign, perfect will, he gives some sinners grace. That brings us to the third lesson. Moses and Pharaoh. Moses and Pharaoh. Verse 15. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very reason I raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Now, this is a challenging passage as well. But now let's think about it. Both Moses and Pharaoh are sinners. Pharaoh is an idol-worshipping Gentile. Moses is a Jewish murderer. It's not Moses is better than Pharaoh. They are both sinners. Moses and Pharaoh were representative of their people. The Egyptians, who by and large were an ungodly people, idol worshippers, but the Jews who were equally ungodly. Moses and the Israelites, listen, Moses and the Israelites received God's grace. Pharaoh and the Egyptians received God's justice for what they deserve. On what basis did that happen? God's sovereign choice. Listen what he said to Moses. Again, verse 15. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. What is the ultimate cause of any person's salvation? What does the Bible tell us? What is the ultimate cause of any person's salvation? The Bible says salvation is of the Lord. It flows from the heart of God. Listen to his message to Pharaoh, the most powerful person on the earth. And take this and make sure as you watch the news about wars and rumors of wars and wicked rulers. Listen to what God said about the leader of the superpower of that day. He said in verse 17, 
Pharaoh, you think you're the God-man? For this purpose I raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and my name would be proclaimed to all the nations. <laughs> you know, I think about, just comes to my mind, Mao Zedong. You remember him? Took over China in 1949. There were one million known believers in China in 1949. He threw out all the missionaries, he killed all the Chinese pastors and put their leaders in prison and determined to stamp out the church. And when that wicked man died over 40 years later, you know how many conservative, conservatively estimated Believers there were in China when Mao Zedong died, 50 million. I'm going to eradicate Christianity. It's the opiate of the people. I'll destroy the Bibles and give them my Mao book. And I'll raise up a new kingdom, a kingdom of man and God sitting in heaven laughed at that foolishness. And said, you don't even understand. I've raised you up. You stamped my church. And you've just scattered the embers. And when you die and go out in the eternity, I'll have 50 million more that bow the name to Jesus. We serve a sovereign God. God's in charge. He's in charge. Now remember this. Pharaoh was not neutral. He rejected. What does it say? Pharaoh hardened his heart. And he hardened his heart. And he hardened his heart. And then you know what it says? God hardened his heart. You harden your heart. You harden your heart. You harden your heart. God says, all right. Have it your way. You see, in order to judge a person for their sins, God doesn't have to do anything. Sin brings its own reward. We judge ourselves. The worst thing that can happen to a person is for God to leave you alone. God withdrew his restraint. And he allowed, listen, he allowed Pharaoh to do what Pharaoh wanted to do. And then used what Pharaoh did wickedly to bring honor and glory to his name. The name of Jehovah throughout the ages. He allowed Pharaoh to do what he wanted to do. But his great justice and power would be known through Pharaoh. And his great grace would be known through slaves that would become emancipated. And bear his name. Now that's the objects of God's sovereignty. Israel, the object lessons. Isaac, Ishmael, Jacob, Esau, Moses, Pharaoh. Now let me close with this just for a moment. One of the objections. Objections to God's sovereignty. And how are they answered? Verse 19, here's the objection. Now he says. You will say to me. Well, why does he find fault? For who can resist his will? 
If, if God is omnipotent and we can't resist his will, how can he find fault with us? He answers that in two ways. An answer of his divine authority and an answer about human responsibility. Divine authority. Notice what he says, verses 20 and 21. How does he answer? Who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Amen. Will what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay? To make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and the other for dishonorable use? What is it? God, Paul says it's basically this. When you say God is in unjust, who do you think you are? Amen. You know, the, the first great light will come into your mind when you understand this. There is a God and he's not me. That's where it all begins. There's a God, and I'm not Him. He gives a spiritual il illustration. Four times in the Old Testament, four times Israel is called clay. God is compared to a potter. Now, th two things remember here <laughs> the clay's not neutral, <laughs> all sinners. These are sinners. We're all not just sinners. We're not neutral. We're active sinners resisting God's will until he makes Christ known to us. We deserve only wrath. We understand that or we should. But for the purpose of God's sovereignty to, to display himself, the greatest glory, he displays his great justice and he displays his great mercy. His justice in giving people what they deserve and His mercy in giving grace to those who don't deserve it. Verse 22. What if God deserving to show... Uh, what if God, rather, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Now let me stop here just for a moment. I'm going to bring this to a close. You have to read very carefully what is said here. Sometimes what Paul is sharing in the original language of the Greek he's using doesn't come across exactly in English. This is one of these times we need to make sure we see this. God does not make people sinful. He does not predetermine people's sin. <laughs> verse, five, verse 23 here, notice verse 23. He says, in verse, uh, rather in verse number 22... What if God, desiring to show his wrath, to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath 
prepared for destruction. I want you to just note in your Bible, prepared for destruction. That is in the passive voice, the passive voice. It means this, God has endured with much patience. He has endured with much patience. The vessels of wrath who have prepared themselves for destruction. It's passive. They have prepared themselves for this. Verse 23. In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared. You see? That's active voice. God has prepared some for his glorious grace. Others by their own work in their own hearts, are preparing themselves for judgment. And this judgment will bring glory to God. God's justice will be glorified or God's grace will be glorified. Amen. Now, the application here is this. Notice what he quotes. He quotes scripture here in the Old Testament. As indeed, verse 25, he says in those in Hosea. Remember Hosea? Hosea was a prophet. He was told to marry a woman who he was told in advance, she's not going to be faithful to you. God told him to do this. And he says through him, because Hosea went and brought her back with unconditional love. God says this through Hosea, that prophet. Those who were not my people, I will call what? My people. And her who was not beloved, I will call loved. In the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called the children of the living God. Amen. People not his people will be made his people. Who will receive this Glorious restoration. He says, well, is it just Jewish people? Verse 27. And Isaiah, he quoted Hosea. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully without delay. He's saying, there is a judgment coming to the nation of Israel. He's talking in the past about what would happen with the invasion of the Assyrians, the invasion of the Babylonians. But God would bring out a remnant of people. And notice, as Paul makes this application, is it just Jewish people who are going to be included? Look at verse 24. 
and take hope in this. Verse 24. In order that he may, might make known the glories of uh, his riches, of his glory for vessels of mercy, whom he has prepared for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. What was the promise that God made to Abraham in you all the nations of the earth, what? Will be blessed. Amen. Jesus is the Savior of the world. Jews, Gentiles, He's the Savior. Now, let's read this final passage and then we will go after we sing to the Lord. Here's the human responsibility. My friends, never forget, in the Bible, you have these two truths. There's God's sovereignty and human responsibility. Both. Verse 30. What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by what? Faith. How does the righteousness come to a person, Jew or Gentile? By faith. But there are those, verse 31, he speaks to Israel of that day who pursued a law that would lead them to righteousness, but they didn't succeed in reaching that law. They couldn't keep the law. They were trying to earn their righteousness, so they didn't attain to righteousness. And here's what the result is. They did not pursue righteousness by faith, but as it were, based on works. And trying to do it by works, they have not attained it. They've stumbled over the stumbling stone. What's the stumbling stone? It's who's the stumbling stone? As it is written, here's the prophecy of Messiah. I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. What's he saying? There will be this stone carved out without hands. You remember David, Daniel saw that? And it will grow to a great kingdom. He's speaking of Messiah. And people who stumble over him, they won't, they won't believe in him. He becomes a stone of offense, judgment. But notice what it says. Those who what? Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. You see, friend, it always comes down to this. What are you going to do with Jesus? Are you going to stumble over him? Or are you going to fall on him?
and cling to him? Are you going to argue God's grace? Are you going to argue God's sovereignty? Are are you going to imagine that you have got to figure out God's sovereignty and wisdom before you can believe? Or are you, by the grace of God, going to stop arguing with God and in humility will you fall on Jesus? And whoever believes in him, falls on him, will never be put to shame. A lot of times people will ask me, do you, you know, do you believe in God's sovereignty or you, do you believe in man's or in woman's will to choose? You know what I do? I say, you know what? I believe what Jesus believed. And I don't think I'm being smart because I'm not smart. I just believe what Jesus said <laughs> and think I'm not smart enough to understand it all. But here's what I do understand. Here's what Jesus said. John 6, 37. All the Father has given to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast him out. Amen. Now what did Jesus say? Stop right there. He said there is a people beyond number that God the Father has given to his son Jesus. And all of them are going to come to him. And here's the promise. Everyone that comes to me, I will never turn him away. So what's your responsibility? Well, let's see. I think I'll go home and figure out divine election. Are you kidding me? You see how I've messed it up this morning so much. Here's the question. You want to know what the question is? The question is the same question Pontius Pilate asked the crowd the morning Jesus was handed over. Here's what he asked. What shall I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? you got to answer that question. If you come to him, he will never cast you out. You are saved. And that's where you need to respond. Will you come to Jesus? There are things God only knows, understands. But friend, I want to tell you, if you desire to come to Jesus, you desire to be free, you desire to have a new life, That desire coming up in you is a work of the Lord. He's calling you. Now you come to Jesus. Not to the church. Not to the baptistry. Not to the communion table. You come to Jesus. And what did the one who cannot lie promise? Whoever comes to me, I will not. What? cast out. So here's the question. Have you come to Jesus? 
If you say, yes, 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 I know I've come to Jesus, then what did Jesus say he wouldn't do? Cast you out. You say, well, I got to think about this some more. I got I to I gotta, I gotta think this over. Okay, think it over, but you're going to come back to the same place. What are you going to do with Jesus? Are you going to come to him or not? Because if you come to him in faith, he will receive you. Lord, I come and I ask, I truly ask that you will bless the word that I've tried to open. I sense how uh, much I've fallen short. But Lord, we confess you are sovereign God. You are God. You are holy. You are sovereign. And we thank you for that sovereign, wonderful grace that is offered to sinners and Lord thank you as we come your promise is I will not cast you out Lord may every person this morning every person watching or listening may they be certain they have come to Jesus and embrace the promise I will never cast you out thank you Lord, that in your grace, you receive sinful men and women like us. We praise you forever. And now, Lord, help our response to be to stop fighting you, to stop battling, but to say, have thine own way, Lord, have thine own way. Would you stand?